You obviously like listening to powerful and inspiring women, so we want to tell you about another show that highlights women who are trailblazers and generally kick ass wherever they are. Latina to Latina, hosted by broadcast veteran Alicia Menendez, lets you listen in on intimate conversations with some of the most fascinating Latinas in the U.S. These women are changing the world in media, business, fashion, fitness, and so many other fields. From Hollywood power producers, to chefs building culinary empires, to activists redefining bravery, guests on Latina to Latina are the types of women you'll come to admire. So take a listen and subscribe to Latina to Latina wherever you listen to podcasts and visit latinatolatina.com for more. Welcome back, Brown Girls. I'm Ashanti Golar, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide and the political director for Emerge America. Last episode, we heard from the incredible North Dakota State Representative Ruth Buffalo, who is the only Indigenous woman serving in the North Dakota State Legislature. We talked about her historic run for office and the legislation she has passed around missing and murdered Indigenous women. If you missed it, check it out. On this episode, we are celebrating Pride Month at the BGG by recognizing trailblazing LGBTQ brown girls. And today we will be speaking with Aditi Hardiker. Aditi currently serves as the manager of the office of the CEO for the Obama Foundation. Yes, that Obama. In this role, she helps achieve the mission of the foundation to inspire, empower, and connect people to change their world. In 2016, Aditi served as Coalition's Finance Director for the Hillary Clinton for President campaign, as Associate Director of the Office of Public Engagement and Intergovernmental Affairs in the Obama administration, where she was the White House's primary liaison to the LGBTQ and AAPI communities, and most recently as a Strategic Political Consultant, advising clients on policy, tactical organizing, external partnerships, communications, and fundraising. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Aditi. Hello, Aditi. How are you today? I'm good, Ashanti. How are you? I'm good. And I'm actually excited because we are recording this interview on College Signing Day. And you have on your Michigan sweatshirt. And college is actually where you start to get involved in politics. So what made you wake up one day and say, all right, I'm walking into this political meeting? Um, Well, first of all, go blue. Um, And second of all, (laughs) so I really think that my political consciousness, my political awareness, I think started with how I was raised, even before college. I was raised by a single mom, a widow, and my older sister. We were in Michigan. It was a brand new country to my mom. And none of the other Indian families we hung out with looked like my family, which was both, I think, exciting to people, but also a little threatening. Here was this woman who was doing a badass job raising her two girls in a brand new country and really instilling in her two daughters this freedom and independence that we could do whatever we wanted and we could aspire to whatever we wanted. And I think that was just really empowering to to be brought up in that way and to be in this all women household and the way that we that my mom talked about other women was so positive and the way that we listened to Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey nonstop. And just I, I think having that 
political consciousness of just knowing that I was different from other people um, and how things like public school and public libraries just really made my family possible and it was possible for us to succeed because of it. And so I had that predisposition. And then when I got to college, I was following in the footsteps of my older sister who really, I think, awakened in me this desire and excitement to be in politics and for politics and public service. And I was following in her footsteps going to the University of Michigan, and she had done all kinds of incredible activist work there. And I was trying to figure out my niche and wanted to get involved in democratic politics and and figure that out. But I think it was really when I came out to myself and then came out to my family and other people that I realized that my identity and that the personal experiences I was having were really political. And it made me want to get involved in South Asian women's organizations, this organization called Yoniki Bhat that I led for four years, which really brought to the fore different issues in the South Asian community that were often taboo. So things like domestic violence and being queer and all kinds of things that were taboo in my community, figuring out how to shine a light and make sure that the women whose experiences we were talking about actually had a voice and were able to perform or direct or whatever they wanted. And then also getting involved in the LGBTQ movement on campus and thinking about, you know, 2007 was a much different time than it is today, which is hard to think, but there was a lot at stake and a lot that we need to, we needed to do to support each other and to bring those issues to the forefront. So that really kind of awakened this in me. And then, of course, the being a college student during the 2008 election was a really one-of-a-kind experience where I got to see firsthand how I could be involved in such a huge political process, how I could help talk to students who maybe weren't sure about voting, how I could talk to other folks in the greater Michigan area, and just what what that felt like to be part of something so much bigger than ourselves. And then to see on election night that the entire campus exploded and kind of didn't know what to do with all this excitement they had. They were, you know, impromptu rallies (laughs) in the diag. There was an impromptu parade all the way up to the big house, our football stadium. I mean, people just had no clue what to do. They were just losing their minds because I think so many other people felt wow, here I am, you know, maybe 18 or older, and I just got to do something that made a huge difference. And I knew from then on, I actually decided right after that election, I was like, I'm going to be a White House intern in the Obama administration, summer of 2010, it's going to happen, I'm going to just will it into the universe. It actually did end up happening. And it was such an incredible experience from then on. But really, I think it was my family setting me up. And then this kind of political and, and so socio-political awareness that I had that that got me on this path. I love that so much. And I just think that election night, so many of us just didn't know what to do with ourselves. But one of the things that you talked about is how 2007 was a much different time than it is now in 2019. But one of the reasons why it is so different is because of the amazing work that you did. And you did become a part of the Obama 44 family. I'm honored to be a part of the Obama 44 family, too. But you served in the White House as President Obama's liaison for the LGBTQ community and also the Asian American community. And you started off as an intern. Like you said, you said, I'm going to go to the White House and I'm going to intern. 
And I want you to talk more about that because I know there's going to be a lot of young women who are listening now. They're starting summer internships with the hopes of developing that political career. And I think that you are someone who they can definitely learn from on how to channel that and how to really utilize an internship to your advantage. So you go from an intern to the liaison for two very important communities for the first African-American president. That That's really impressive. Th- this is why I love you. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we're kindred spirits, Ashanti, because I'm in awe of you. And I'm so glad that we're part of this Obama 44 family, especially right now. You know, I, I was so lucky to get that internship. And it wasn't just being a White House intern, which was, of course, incredible, but I got to intern for the very first White House LGBT liaison in the Obama administration. His name is Brian Bond, as you know well. I think you also Brian. count him as a mentor. And I do, but so many young women of color do. Brian is just, he's amazing. When he says he's going to uplift women of color, he walks it like he talks it. So true. Do you think Migos wrote that song about Brian? It is. He should get some money from that because it's all about him. (laughs) And then we'll have to fill him in into what Migos is. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. He'll be like those crazy girls. (laughs) Leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) But we digress. So I got to be his intern and it was such just a transformative experience getting to work for this man. He he lived what the community was was excited about in President Obama and what the community so wanted as an openly gay, HIV positive man who broke so many barriers, who was the first openly gay executive director of a state party, Missouri or Missouri, no less, and working uh, to do amazing things for the Gay and Lesbian Victory Fund. And so then getting to see him really represent the LGBT community for the for the Obama administration, but also representing the Obama administration to the LGBT community was just it was just a wonder to see. And watching him, I didn't quite know exactly what he was doing. It was still super kind of undercover, but or you know behind the scenes. But working with various lawyers and various folks across the administration to think about how do we go about repealing "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" in the most lasting and powerful way, which was of course to go through Congress, but first to conduct studies with the military and to talk to service members and generals and folks all across the board and getting to see how he was thinking so intersectionally and inclusively all throughout, I think just was, it it floored me. Um, I knew that it would be special to be in the white house and to serve in that way, but I could never have imagined the types of things that he did every day and that the whole office of public engagement team and intergovernmental affairs team that I saw on a day-to-day basis got to do. And so after those few months, Well, during those few months, I really made it a point to just do the best I possibly could, try to anticipate anything Brian needed, try to expand to make sure that I was building relationships with Tina Chen, who at the time was the head of OPE, to uh, other folks who are in charge of various teams and, and departments, just to get a feel for what people did in public service and what inspired them and try my best to do them proud and then stay in touch afterwards. So as I was thinking about what was I going to do after graduating in 2011? I remember emailing tons of people that I had met during my time as a White House intern, including Brian, including just tons and tons of people. I mean, I, I'm sure if I went back to my early, uh, to my 2011, 2010 days on Gmail and looked at my sent box, I would be pretty embarrassed because it was, it was just 
I, I did not have any shame. <laughs> it was like email after email, copy and paste, um, probably several dozen people um, just say, hey, you know, I'm so interested in thinking about the president's reelection campaign. Do you think there might be a role for me? Are you planning on getting involved any way I can help? And I got crickets from everyone. And I know that wasn't because people didn't care. I know it wasn't because I didn't work really hard and, and hopefully I made a really good impression too. But I think people, frankly, were trying to figure out their own moves. Some were still in the White mm-hmm. House. Some were thinking about, am I going to get on the campaign? What do I do? And it was, it was, a, little, it was a little disorienting, but, um, but that was okay. I think maybe Brian said, I don't know yet. I'll, I'll get back in touch. So maybe it wasn't fully crickets, but pretty close to crickets. And, and it, didn't, it didn't upset me. I was just like, okay, it's going to be a lot harder than I thought. And then as I went through, um, you know, thinking about, okay, well, I do need to still get a job. So I ended up working for Campus Progress, which now is called Generation Progress in the Center for American Progress, as um, I had a couple of months uh, summer events contractor uh, position um, contract. And all the while I was trying to think about who can I talk to, who can I have coffee with, until I realized that I had met Brian Bond's former intern um, prior to me. His name was Zach Portillo. And I was like, why don't I just give him a call? He was so nice to me, so helpful. And he actually was the one who um, offered me a job working on President Obama's campaign as his intern. And I said, well, will there be a job? And he's like, I don't know. But we are working to raise money with the LGBT community. And I think you would have a blast in Chicago. Maybe we'll try to find you a place to say no, no um, promises, (laughs) but but typical campaign life, typical, come on board. (laughs) And that ended up being the best decision of my life to say yes to it and to move my whole life from DC, from DC to Chicago and work just kind of on a whim, on a, on a hope and a prayer to be an intern in this office And it was after six months of just grueling work that I found so fulfilling and exciting. But as an unpaid intern, um, Zach had actually moved over somewhere else. So there was um, his position that was open that I was so desperately hoping I would get hired for. But that my amazing boss at the time was like, you just graduated from college. It would be great to have somebody who's done this before. Eventually, at the end of the year in 2011, I was kind of thinking about, okay, my boss, whom I love, he needs to advocate for me. If Iowa is the best battleground state, he has to say, Aditi, we're going to get you to be a field organizer there. It's going to be great. And so I had this whole speech prepared, but he wanted to talk to me first. And I was like, okay, you can go first. And he said, um, starting January 1, 2012, I want you to be the deputy director. So he was the director of LGBT fundraising and organizing in battleground states, and he wanted me to be his deputy. This was like not even a year out of college. And he took a chance on me. I think he also had no choice, as you know, on campaigns. You don't have the luxury (laughs) of of a long, you know, interview process and all of that. And having somebody who's been there and knows the ropes, um, I think I think ended up being kind of the only choice. But that really propelled me in a way that I had no business otherwise. Um, I mean, I was 22 and I had this job. I was traveling to battleground states. I was putting on the first lesbian roundtable fundraisers with Mrs. Obama. We did four of them. Um, insane. That Maybe that's for another podcast, but we did. It was between <laughs> 20 to 30 women who sat at a table with First Lady Michelle Obama and talked about issues that they cared about. And anyway, getting to do that on such a national scale was just incredible. And again, I felt like I had no business doing it, but I was just going to power through it and just convince myself that I could do it. And 
I think, you know, going after that, I just was on this really amazing path to get to have some pretty special job opportunities, like being the LGBT and API finance director at the DNC um, from 2013 to 2014. And it was when I was in that job that I got a call to see if I was interested in um, interviewing to be the LGBT and API liaison. Um, And, you know, I know that was a super long, long story, but I just wanted to set up that context of there were so many things from being an intern to there um, that I really credit uh, people taking a chance on me, people like Brian, people like Jamie Citron, who was my boss on the campaign and folks um, who I think just really helped me to get to be then the White House liaison after interning for the first liaison four years prior. And I love that because it was those relationships that you built and it was just being so serious about what you're doing, even though it was an internship, it was able to catapult you into an amazing career. Individually, there's only so much we can accomplish, but together we can do so much. Small dollar donors prove that point. In the 2018 election cycle, they gave more than $1.6 billion to campaigns and organizations through ActBlue's platform. That's because ActBlue makes online giving easy and secure. ActBlue's simple and powerful digital fundraising tools empower donors and enable campaigns and organizations, big and small, to flourish. Candidates and organizations choose ActBlue because their offerings are truly unparalleled in the market. As a nonprofit and a tech organization, ActBlue does rigorous A-B testing and its tools are optimized for mobile. Plus, ActBlue is always working to improve its services. ActBlue is the online fundraising platform of choice for thousands of Democratic campaigns and progressive organizations. Special thanks to ActBlue for their support of this first season of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. ActBlue is responsible for the content of this advertising. Something else you talked about a lot is just being young, being a woman, being a woman of color, being LGBTQ. I would like for you to just talk a little bit about intersectionality and bringing your entire self to these roles, because a question I get all the time from women of color, particularly young women of color, is can I really be myself in these spaces? Because we have to be frank. We're always frank on this podcast. We're still working in predominantly white spaces that you have to navigate and it's very challenging. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. It's, I think, like you said, it continues to be a journey for us, right? We think about Mm -hmm. which parts do we feel safe in terms of our identity, bringing to work, bringing to the various, Mm -hmm. maybe an interview, how do we make sure, okay, well, I can't bring up this because maybe it's not safe to talk about being queer. Maybe it's Mm -hmm. not safe to talk about my mom being an immigrant, maybe it's not safe to talk about, Mm -hmm. to really play up the fact that I'm young or was younger at the time. And (laughs) I think what was helpful was being, you know, it was, it was pretty clear or it was clear to most that when I was, when I had various roles with LGBT in front of them, it was pretty clear that either I was super into the community or I was a member of the community. And so I think that helped And I think it saved me from having to do some of those scary coming out conversations that I know a lot of my fellow queer women who are listening to this podcast have had to do and still do probably on a daily basis. And Mm -hmm. I was definitely fortunate to get to do that and to automatically be associated with other queer people and for people to kind of feel comfortable with me in that way. 
one one thing that's interesting, especially about being a queer woman of color, is I I think back to my first couple of weeks as the new White House LGBT and Asian American Pacific Islander liaison. And my colleague who worked on faith outreach for the Office of Public Engagement, she was hosting the consortium or the council of Hindu presidents across the country. So folks who were the presiding member over Hindu temples all across the country. And I think it was something like 150 people. And she said, well, you're this, you're the brand new API liaison. Can you come address this group? And I, it kind of threw me for a loop. I was thinking, okay, well, I was raised Hindu. I am an Indian person. Many members of my family are Hindu, but I kind of have this notion or this judgment about Hindu people or people who want to be involved in a Hindu temple in that way that they're probably not too supportive of my identity and they probably aren't too excited about LGBTQ people and probably don't want to think about that there are LGBTQ people who are also Indian, even though there are over 1 billion people living on the continent of India. But those types of things were just in just going through my head. And I said, well, of course, I'll speak to them. But as I was preparing and and considering what I was going to say to this group, I was thinking, well, because of of these fears that I have, maybe I'll only talk about the work that we're doing in the API community, the plans I have for community outreach and thinking about the ACA and how can we reach more people in the API community so that they know to sign up for ACA potentially qualify for subsidies, et cetera. But as I was walking to the stage in Southcore Auditorium, you probably remember that uh, little place well. Oh, yes. <laughs> I feel like we lived there for eight wonderful years, though. We tried our best to pack as many people with folding chairs in that place. I sat in those a few times. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Likewise. So as I was walking to the stage to address these 150 presidents of Hindu temples, I thought, you know what, this is insane. I am this liaison, this is an incredible honor. I am doing myself a disservice if I'm going to be closeted and not talk about this big part of my life and my work and my identity. And so I, right off the bat, introduced myself. I said, my name is Aditi Hardiker. I am President Obama's liaison to the Asian American Pacific Islander community and the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community. And it was important to me that I actually spelled out what LGBT meant because I didn't want anyone to just think, oh, it's some whatever acronym, but really say, this is the work that I do. And I talked about being a queer person myself and the lens that I was bringing to both roles that as a queer person, I wanted to make sure that the API outreach we did was inclusive of that identity in those communities. And as an Asian American person thinking about the LGBTQ work that we were doing, and ensuring that it was inclusive and intersectional. And it was terrifying, I was sweating, but I felt really good about doing it. And I was kind of nervous to hang around afterwards in the break for people to talk to me or for people to give me a side eye. I wasn't sure what to expect. And right afterwards, during a break, um, two different presidents of, of Hindu temples, and one of whom I think was the president of the whole council, came up to me and, and the there was this gentleman who said, you know, I am so happy that you talked about the work that you're doing and that you're doing the work that you're doing as an Indian American person. And he opened up to me and he said, you know, my daughter is a lesbian and we've been having a really hard time finding a Hindu priest who will marry her and her partner. And Mm. it's just, yeah, it gives me chills just thinking about that. And, 
you know, had I not brought that up, he wouldn't have found a way to connect. And maybe he can go tell his daughter after that, well, you know, there's a person who's just like you, who's leading this work. And, you know, there's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And the, the, the woman who heads up the council said, you know, Aditya, it is so important that you are who you are and that you are saying these types of things in front of everyone. They need to hear it. And we need to make sure that we're inclusive of all of that and your identity and that community within this community. And I just, I was totally floored. And then I felt, I felt guilty because I almost let my, my own prejudice of a community that I belong to, I almost let that prevent this really special and important connection, connective moment. I almost, I almost prevented that because of my own judgmental thinking. And from then on, I tried to be, and I still do try to be as mindful of that where, you know, we can't, we can't let our own prejudices, whether it's internal prejudice, internalized prejudice of being an Indian person myself or whatever it is, we can't let that get in the way of giving people a chance to surprise you or giving people a chance to meet you where you are. And that that story from that and that experience from so early on at my time at the White House really shaped how I thought about intersectionality. Oh gosh, I'm just I'm tearing up hearing that story. It's so beautiful. But this is something that we do a lot of times. We walk into a room, we're like, okay, how much am I going to lean into my brownness or being LGBTQ? A lot of times you just have to make the decision to say, I'm going for it. I said what I said. I am who I am. And that is so inspiring. And I know you talk a lot about how representation is important. The pin tweet on your Twitter account says, so let me have this right. There are now two openly LGBTQ U.S. senators and two openly bi people serving in prominent offices and two queer people of color elected to the U.S. Congress in the 2018 midterms. And they're all women. Representation matters. So for you to see those results, having been in politics for so long, I just like to hear from you, like, why is that so important to the women's community, to the LGBTQ community, the people of color community, just having this background that you have and with all you've seen and experienced? Yeah, the 2018 results were so incredibly just powerful and exciting for me just watching those returns come in as a queer woman of color. And like you said, somebody who's worked in these communities in these spaces for a little while, because Ashanti, I think you know just as well as I do, and maybe more than most, that if we don't have diverse voices at decision-making tables, we are most certainly going to be left out of policy, of decisions. We're probably going to be on the menu and the first people Mm -hmm. that will be kind of sacrificed for whatever other, you know, gain somebody wants to make. And so the fact that we had that we have a native lesbian from Kansas serving in Congress just brings a whole different perspective. The fact that we have an openly bi US senator from the state of Arizona that just <laughs> the the aperture that we that we now have brought in to uh, policy making and decision making is just it just blows my mind. And you know, for for women of color from all across the country to be elected from mid from the Midwest to the South to to the East to the West, it's huge. It's you know being able to to bring diverse voices to the table when you think about immigration policy, think about national security, think about healthcare, think about climate, think about so many things that 
if you just have a homogenous group of people, you can't expect them to be able to speak for every other constituency that doesn't look look like them. And frankly, nor mm-hmm. do you want them to. You want people mm-hmm. who look like you and me and who look like a lot of members uh, that just were elected last year who are now in Congress to be speaking for our communities, right? And so I'm just so excited about, you know, the possibility for policymaking and the possibility for just creating a real pipeline of talent. I think it would be remiss of us not to talk about the fact that there are 20 Democratic candidates running for the nomination for president right now. And it is the most diverse field we have ever had. We have women Mm -hmm. of color. We have an openly gay person. We have a man of we have men of color. We have a veteran. We just we have such a wide diversity of people that I think only I think the, the it speaks to the fact that we have been willing to, as Democrats and as progressives, bring more and more diverse people to the table. And if if we aren't encouraging people of color to run for things like the school board or a statewide elected official or a statewide uh, elected office or state legislature, we're not then building this plat- building this pipeline to get people to want to run for things like president. And so the more and more people that we have who are serving in office, the, the bigger and more diverse and more beautiful pipeline we're going to have and the more successful we'll be as a party. I agree. One of the notions that I'm constantly dispelling is that women of color, people of color can only represent districts of color. And the fact is women of color can run and win everywhere. We see that with Sharissa Davis, with Ayanna Presley, with Deb Holland. And just seeing them is the actual physical proof of how we can push back on this narrative because we are already in the 2020 presidential election cycle and we're already hearing about electability when it comes to the candidates of color and the women of color. And I'm just constantly rolling my eyes, especially when it comes to the women, because I'm saying, okay, is it electability or likability? Let's keep it real with what you're talking about. And we are coming off of the She the People presidential forum where we had eight of those Democratic candidates there. And a recent article actually talked about how the political parties and candidates are vying for the attention of the AAPI community ahead of the 2020 election. So having done such extensive work in this community, what advice would you have for the candidates who are looking to truly engage with and create policies that positively impact the AAPI community? I love that. Yeah, I think I think the there's a misconception of what the API community is. I think a lot of people think it's a monolith that there is mm-hmm. one type of API person that it's maybe a person from one of the most populous countries in the world and that's it. And potentially they're really wealthy or very well educated and you know that that's it. But in fact, the API community is so incredibly diverse in terms of language, religion, immigration status, income status, um, political beliefs, et cetera. And I think for candidates to really really consider the wide range of API people um, is, is gonna be incredibly important, not just to win, although I think that is a huge key to win, um, whether we're talking about you know Vietnamese communities in places like Louisiana or Indian American mm-hmm. communities, in place, Indian American or Arab American or other South Asian American communities in a place like Michigan uh, or Minnesota, 
you know, I think I think folks are going to really need to grapple with that. But but more than just winning, um, you know, it's about really building um, kind of political power across so many different communities and especially marginalized communities within the API community. And um, I think, you know, I, I would welcome and I would invite candidates to go uh, go have sessions with various communities and listen to what their various needs are. Is it is it housing assistance? Is it healthcare? Is it better access to better schools? Um, chances are they're going to get a lot of different answers and they should consider all of that as they're thinking about policymaking. That is sound advice. We're going to make sure that we send this clip to all the presidential candidates <laughs> to hear what Aditi has to say with some just really key things that they need to do. So in this conversation, we talked about you being a campus organizer, an intern. You are one of the few women of color doing political fundraising. You're now doing great work at the Obama Foundation, continuing the legacy of President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama. What advice would you have to the brown girls that are listening that are saying, I want to be just like her? I so appreciate that and um, would love to hear what your listeners also, what advice they have for me too, because I'd love to hear that. (laughs) Um, But I think a couple of things. One is just staying true to yourself. It's knowing your values, knowing what makes you excited, knowing knowing what types of ingredients or environments really allow you to thrive. And I think as long as you stay true to that, you know, I think success is, is really what you make of it from there. And two, it's, it's knowing, it's knowing that you are worth uh, whatever you're putting your mind to. I think too many of us, Mm. especially women of color, we think, well, you know, it's not really my turn. Um, You know, it's, it's, I'm not, I don't, I don't yet have that type of experience. So I will wait Mm -hmm. until I really feel like I have as close to 100% of the qualifications necessary for this job. When we know other folks that don't look like us don't do that and they feel confident to step up and say, actually, I can do this job and give me the chance and I will show you. And I think having role models like Stacey Abrams, who for whom so many people told her, it's not really your turn. Even people yeah. in our own party was, were telling her, it's not your turn. You know, wait, mm-hmm. wait a second. It's not, it's not for you. But seeing more and more people who look like us say, I actually can do this job and I can do it really well. And I can bring a just wealth of different perspectives and knowledge to the table. So those two things. And then I think three is just really figuring out um, kind of uh, with what I said to the first one, really figuring out what makes you tick and what makes you, what, what lights a fire in you. Because I think, you know, we can, we can take whatever job and we can, you know, punch the clock and, and maybe that's what we need to do to support ourselves. But really thinking about, um, what, what lights that fire in us and, and what makes us just excited to give our all into what we're doing, whether that's politics, whether that's working at a nonprofit like the Obama Foundation, whether it's working in government, um, state or local or federal. Um, I think we, sh- we should really challenge ourselves to, to figure out what is it that just make us so excited to get up and go to work every day. Or if we do need to go to a job every day, that's not you know, lighting that fire in us, which is totally fine. And, and many of us are in that space. What, what's going to make, make us excited on the weekends to volunteer or after work to volunteer? I love that. What lights your fire? That is so great. 
Aditi, thank you so much for your time. We wish you the best, all your continued success, and you are amazing. We appreciate you. Ashanti, thank you much, and thank you so much to BGG listeners. You guys are amazing. My conversation with Aditi was truly wonderful. It reminded me that we all start from somewhere. As we embark on the 2020 presidential election cycle, for all the young girls listening out there, please remember that Aditi just showed up one day. Her care for her community led her to want to make change. All you have to do is show up and want to make a difference in order to start your journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. Keep track of what we're doing in between episodes on social media. You can find the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the BG Guide. For more from Aditi, you can find her on Twitter at Aditi Heart of Care. And don't forget, follow Wonder Media Network on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. Talk to you next week.